Welcome to MFM Speaks Out. This is the official podcast of the nonprofit advocacy organization called Musicians for Musicians. This monthly podcast is co-hosted by MFM members and musicians Adam Reifsteck and yours truly, Dawood Kringle. MFM seeks to bring together musicians from all disciplines, styles, traditions, and locations in the cause of their mutual self-betterment. Whether through education, networking, or political action, MFM's ultimate goal is to elevate the work of all musicians to the level of a true profession. We encourage you to get involved by using the hashtags on social media, Unity in the Music Community, and Making Music as a Profession. And we encourage you to visit musiciansformusicians.org and to join our organization. If you'd like to become a supporter, you may do so by visiting our website. Again, that's musiciansformusicians.org. Our guest for this episode of MFM Speaks Out is Sylvain LaRue. Sylvain is a flautist, saxophonist, guitarist, composer, arranger, band leader, educator, and inventor. He grew up in Montreal where he studied classical flute at Vincent de Indy and later improvisation and composition in New York City at the Creative Music Studio where he attended classes by luminaries such as Don Cherry, the Art Ensemble of Chicago, Carl Berger, Cecil Taylor, and many others. A pioneer of African and jazz collaborations, Sylvain is a foremost player of the Fula flute, the traditional flute from Guinea, Africa. He was selected as Rising Flute Star by Downbeat Magazine Critics Poll for many years, achieving the number two spot in 2019. As a band leader, he brought traditional West African music to Zankel Hall with his Fula Flute Ensemble and held the fort for more than a decade at New York City's Zinc Bar with his African jazz group Source. His 2002 CD, Fula Flute, achieved cult status and stimulated a worldwide interest in the instrument. His 2012 album, Quater Creole, was hailed as a perfect contemporary music release. He curated New York's Griot Summits that featured performances by 25 West African griots from five countries. He has performed and recorded with Emmeline Michelle, Adam Rudolph, Carl Berger, Hassan Hockman, Billy Martin, and many West African musicians. As a maker and seller of Fula flutes around the world, he invented and patented the Chromatica, a Fula flute capable of chromatic functionality. This led him to initiate Ecole Fula Flute, a music literacy project that graduated many excellent young flutists who are now re-energizing an endangered flute tradition. Before we begin, let's listen to some music. This is a piece from the album Chromatica called Zoe. Thank you. 
Welcome to MFM Speaks Out. Welcome once again. Uh, Thank you to, so much, Darwin. Yeah, it's always good to, to see you and, and to hear you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, we uh, enjoy and are grateful for all the contributions you've made to our uh, Likewise, endeavors. Likewise, you've been uh, very generous to me. I appreciate it so much. Ah, that's great. Let's talk a little bit about your uh, educational background. You studied mm -hmm. You originally studied classical flute at uh, Vincent D'Indy and uh, improvisation and composition in New York at the Creative Music School. You had also attended classes by by some uh, luminaries such as Don Cherry, uh, the Art Ensemble of Chicago, uh, Carl Berger, and Cecil Taylor. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, some of those uh, experiences? Sure. I mean, I was uh, very, uh, I didn't know most of these people actually, like Don Cherry and Artists Ensemble of Chicago. When I went to Creative Music Studio, I was, um, you know, I was coming out of uh, classical music school and I was interested in jazz and I was taking some private jazz lessons in Montreal. There wasn't really any jazz programs there at the time. Mm. But I knew I was interested in jazz and improvisational music, and somebody recommended the Creative Music Studio, so uh, I applied and uh, I went. It was a three uh, three month session in the spring of 1978, mm -hmm. um, and I arrived there to discover this amazing world of of music within. You know, so my first guest artist, the way Creative Music Studio work was. Uh, we had some basic, what they call basic training workshops in the morning that concentrated on tuning and timing. And then in the afternoon, we every week we'd get a, a guest artist and uh, we, whom we'd work for about four days and put a concert together. So let's say they would arrive typically on a Tuesday. So we'd get Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And then Friday night, we'd do a concert with the guest artists. Mm -hmm. And uh, so my first guest artist was Leo Smith, who uh, has uh, mm. become a very uh, famous uh, jazz trumpeter since then. And uh, he had all these concepts. And, and then the second week was Don Cherry. And of course, you know, then I discovered all these uh, wonderful artists and discovered how significant they were uh, while I was there. And also going back to Leo Smith, he, he's the first one that week we're sitting at the table at the cafeteria and he starts talking about world music, you know, and mentioning, oh, you know, uh, Harry Parch and Don mm -hmm. Cherry as like the most significant world music artists. And then the following week, of course, we get Don Cherry and that was like a whole amazing experience. And uh, and then it went on like that. Uh, we got some more people that I didn't know, like uh, uh, Alvin Curran was a uh, electronic music composer. And uh, then we got Frederick Jeffsky, who's a contemporary composer. Like Carla Blay would used to mm. used to come by because she lived in not far from there, and she would spend time with us. And we premiered uh, some scores with her, and uh, some other ones. Uh, uh, more famous ones, Steve Lacey came by, anyway, and so on. So, uh, and then I came back to Creative Music Studio and then met some other great artists like Don Cherry, and I mean, like um, uh, the artists of Chicago, 
took a New Year's intensive with them and uh, Cecil Taylor and so on. So it was a slew of these amazing people. Anthony Braxton, we had mm. workshops with him. That must have um, been interesting. <laughs> yeah, one of my heroes, a wonderful, very nice man, very yeah. brilliant, brilliant guy, you know. And uh, so just went on like that and my whole brain just went boom, <laughs> a big atomic bomb in my oh, head, yeah. you know, and completely transformed my thinking about music. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, those are those are what I call uh, game changers. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 and it's it's essential, you know, when we uh, find ourselves into situations where we're presented with uh, ideas that just completely shift our perception of our musical reality. In fact, all of reality itself. Um, what was the jazz and world music scene in uh, like in in Canada at the time? uh pretty um it was uh the jazz scene in montreal is pretty old you know there's like a, a black enclave in montreal and montreal mm -hmm. is a jazz city so it was on the tour itinerary for lots of for great jazz musicians for forever you know since the mm -hmm. 20s or whatever uh but it was kind of very small and very obscure you know and um but when i started studying jazz in montreal then i started discovering it and it was it was pretty strong and pretty lively but not big it was it was underground you know mm. and the world music was non-existent um mm. actually i could probably claim to be one of the pioneers of world music in montreal because you know discovering world music at creative music studio then i returned to montreal like full of these this excitement and then i discovered this African musician, uh, Yaya Diallo, who had started uh, a band, you know, and I saw him perform and I was like, oh, yeah, I want to hook up with these people. And they kindly admitted me. And then I, it, this association ended up in a production of a record a couple of years later that was uh, I was told by a very knowledgeable man uh, some years ago that that record was well for sure was the first african music record produced in canada really and not only that but he says it was the world the first world music record produced in canada mm. so the, the the scene was just starting you know it was just burgeoning yeah those mm. days now it's the now of course the montreal jazz festival and world music's all over the place you know it's a very it's huge in canada now yeah you you live in New York now, don't you? Yes, yeah, I've been there for forty years. Yeah. Ah, okay, yeah. How do you, as a Canadian, how do how does it feel living in uh, New York? And uh, do you have any contact with other Canadian musicians? In New Occasionally, York? I mean, mostly uh, English Canadians. There's uh, only a couple of French Canadian musicians that I know of. Uh, I mean, there's more than I know of, but I know personally only a couple and uh more uh english canadians um as a you know in new york city is a very comfortable place to be you know and also for me i suppose uh it's uh, affords me a little more uh uh it, it makes me more interesting to other people like <laughs> <laughs> that i'm french canadian here it doesn't mean in, i'm in montreal right now so i'm saying here i'm in montreal oh, okay. this minute but uh, in Montreal at the time, especially being French Canadian, like 
you know, was more of a detriment, <laughs> mm. you know, just, oh, well, just, you know, like there's this expression in French, I don't know if it exists in English, but nul n'est prophète dans son pays, no one's a prophet in their own land, you know. Ah, yes, yes, so, I've heard that one. Yeah, yeah so, uh, so coming to New York, like my name was like a little more exciting for, to other mm. people, you know, than, you know, whereas uh, down in Montreal, it was just like a uh, same old same old same old you know yeah like john smith would yeah, be yeah, yeah exactly no, same thing yeah yeah so um, so so yeah i mean new york is a cosmopolitan city i'm very comfortable there i and uh, you know i have to say I, I love american culture i love of course jazz and uh and i love american humor and uh american way of speaking and everything so you know and as french canadians we're really kind of half and half between europe and uh, and the in America and the United States, so we can either fall one way or the other. And some mm -hmm. of my families, uh, my brothers and sisters, some have gone more European, and I've gone more American. You know, mm -hmm. so yeah, that's that's how life is sometimes. Yeah. Um, one of your uh, teachers when uh, when you were uh, uh, at the Creative Music uh, Studio, uh, Carl Berger. Yes. Uh, he passed away recently. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah just um, a few days ago. Yeah, that must, I imagine. Yeah. Uh, well, he's, uh, I have to say, you know, I think of him as my spiritual father. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've, I've uh, looked to him a lot like a guru at times, even though he's never, you know, pretended to be anybody's guru. Mm -hmm. um but yeah i have tremendous respect I, you know and uh, every chance i had through all these years since i know him to you know take workshops from him or especially play in his orchestra um i have taken you know since i've been very fortunate to have been pretty as associated with him a lot and also he very nicely agreed to play on my record 10 years ago and uh, really played so wonderful, wonderful music uh, mm. in my in my project. So mm. wonderful man, and and is is I mean, is such a subtle, subtle artist. And to listen to him, everything he plays is just like a a course. You know, like you can listen to it and learn so much from his playing. And uh, and also as a person, he's a philosopher. You know. And he has very subtle way of expressing himself, where you would just say things, very simple things, and then your brain would just start firing. Mm. Oh man, oh, yeah, and all these real, you make all these realizations just from this little simple thing he said, you know, and that that would offer you so much perspective on what we're doing, you know, with the music especially, and also in our society and. Anyway, so uh, and he was very, very gentle, very kind man, uh, welcoming of everybody as a band leader, as an orchestra conductor, he never would put anybody down, he would never say, well, you're not doing this right, or oh, don't do don't do this like this, do that like that, he would suggest, you know, and he would try to uh, illuminate your brain so you would uh, get the concept. <laughs> But uh, you would never come down on somebody or turn somebody away or no whiplash know, moments. No, absolutely. <laughs> that's just the antithesis of that completely. Uh, 
yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, you know, so many people loved him. So many people uh, respected him. I mean, he was also. Uh, most people probably don't know that, but he's a string arranger. He, he arranged strings for a lot of famous people like Natalie Merchant and uh, mm. anyways, I, I forget the names, but lots of you know people recognize the names that people he worked for. He worked mm. with. Well, may he rest in peace. Yes, Amen. Yes. Um, how did you come to the Fula flute? I mean, and, and what what made that special for you so much so that you pretty much devoted uh, an overwhelming majority of your musical life to that? Well, that's uh, that's a whole story. Um, mm. Basically, it started uh, the genesis of it starts with the African music I started getting involved with in Montreal. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this guy, Yaya, he had me on his record in the early 80s. And uh, basically, it was just him and me playing on a record. He played all the percussions using um, overdubbings, and then I played all the flutes. Hmm. And, uh, and then I kind of started me on the African music path, and I worked with some of the African musicians in Montreal. And then moving to New York, not so much for the first 10 uh, in the 10 years or so that I was there. But um, actually, you know, I could say I didn't really pursue it. I didn't look for the Fula Flute. It kind of like came and got me, you know, mm. because what happened is um, in Montreal in the early 80s, I was, I worked with a chora player and a bass player, a Senegalese bass player. We had this little band. And then there's this young woman who came to listen to us. She was only 15 or 16 at the time, and I didn't, didn't know her. But then uh, 10 years later, I ran into her in Montreal, and she remembered me. And now she had become a very, uh, her name is Nathalie Dussault, and she's become a very excellent chora player herself. And she's mm. been going to Africa a lot. And she was working with a band called Takaja, who had just made a, an album that won a Juno award in Canada. It's hmm. like our Canadian Grammy. Right. And they were getting ready to do the next record and they wanted the Fula Flute on their record, you know. And she said, well, I'm going to Guinea, so why don't you come with me and learn that and then you could play on our next album, <laughs> you know. So Really? I said, yeah. I said, well, that sounds so you, like you were good. drafted then. <laughs> I was drafted, yes. And then I went there and spent a month, like uh, pretty much every day working with this teacher. And uh, started getting a little bit of the hang of it and then coming back to New York, working on it some more. But then, uh, but then what happened is that suddenly I started getting more opportunities to play, more opportunities to record, people interested in the flute and not only that, but I, I was like the only flute, flute player in North America that I could locate, you know? Mm. And I, I looked hard and I couldn't find anybody else. I was like number one, I was the alpha and the mm. omega of the Fula Flute for about, for about five years until uh, my, uh, the guy who became my teacher, Bailoba, arrived in like the late 90s, you know. So that was kind of an interesting position to be in. But, uh, you know, for most, um, for most uh, Americans, uh, for most people, uh, for people in North America, it was just like, even though I was playing this authentic instrument as well as I could. I was I couldn't really pretend to any, you know, uh, deep, deep, deep knowledge. Like 
because I had just studied for some amount of time, work with some African musicians, I could grab it. But people, the Africans, they were happy with my playing. They, they, they would compliment me and appreciate my playing. Sometimes when you play that flute, people start crying because the sound is so evocative, you know. And uh, but for for Americans, it was like, well, you know, maybe it's true, maybe it's not true, you know. <laughs> it's like they they didn't really take me. You know, as the the big the big fula flute guy, you know, really. mm-hmm. until um, until like Bailo arrived and we started working together and we did the fula flute record together, and that really like really put fula flute on the map more than than anything. I don't know if I'm I'm, I'm uh, digressing too much, but anyway, no, that's all right. Uh, you uh, no, in fact, you know, with that in mind, you uh, had a band. I believe it was called Source that played right. a lot at uh, yeah. at the Zinc Bar out yes. here in New York uh, for over a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, and you you were playing a basically a combination of Guinean music and uh, jazz. Yeah, uh, how was that accepted among jazz audiences? Well, uh, Zinc Bar, they loved us. They really did. Uh, they. The the zinc bar you gotta give them uh, kudos because they they really helped the fort of African jazz in New York City for like two decades, mm. you know. Um, and the zinc bar they they like to they were very faithful to their the bands that that played there and they they like they had a rotation so they had the African Fridays every Friday was the African jazz night mm. and they had a rotation of four bands basically there was us. And it was uh, the African Blue Note, and it was uh, Kaisa Dumbe, and mm-hmm. then there was uh, uh, Kofo the Wonder Man, and we would each have one one Friday. We I think we had the first Friday if I remember correctly, and um, so and that went on and on and on until uh, basically they lost the African Blue Note because uh, the leader passed away, and then. And then the, the evening wasn't so successful after a while, so then they ended up terminating the series. But, uh, you know, uh, so that's the story of that. But, uh, yeah, you know, we had uh, some great nights there. It was wonderful, yeah. you know. Yeah. You also had the Fula Flute Ensemble and yeah. uh, played at places like uh, Zankel Hall and curated the New York's Griot Summit Summits. You did that for a while, didn't you? Well, the Fula Flute Ensemble, yeah, that was, uh, I was at Source, uh, was kind of an African jazz thing. And the Fula Flute Ensemble was uh, uh, more of a traditional West African griot music, you know. Ah. We had balafon, kora, a, I put an upright bass in there. And we had two flute players, Bailo and me. And we had a singer, Abdullah Jabati. Mm-hmm. And for a while, we had a nice little run there because my the concept for this ensemble was to put the uh, traditional African music into the concert hall mm-hmm. because uh, that kind of hit me one day. I was rehearsing with a balafon player and then I'm listening to the tapes of the rehearsal and it, I just thought the, the sound of mallet on the wood was so delicate and so beautiful, you know, like it would sound so good in the concert hall, of course, with the kora and acoustic bass and you know the flutes it's just uh, I thought it was perfect and for a while that kind of worked but um I'm not sure exactly why but uh, it just went so far and then after that um, it culminated at Sankel Hall 
Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So we actually opened Zanko Hall. It was a, it was an informal concert. I mean, it wasn't advertised. It was just for uh, donors and inside people. And mm. it was like Kenny Barron. And it was uh, Emmanuel Axe and Rennie Fleming. Really? And uh, who else was there? John Adams and the Fula Flute Ensemble. <laughs> yeah, wow. that was kind of like, that was a peak, really. That was really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a great concert. You'd also performed with people like Adam Rudolph, uh, yeah. Hassan mm -hmm. Hockman, and others. Yeah, tell well, us about one or two of these other experiences. Well, Adam, actually, I had met at Creative Music Studio, like, in the early 80s and he had a group called the Mandingo Griot Society and he had come to give workshops at Creative Music Studios so I first met him there and then um, what uh, was this when it was, was this? Uh, 1980 1980 1980 that uh yeah that was actually before his association with Youssef Latif wasn't it I think so yeah yeah I think yeah. so anyway yeah but um yeah so and um and then it was uh, uh, create, uh, the, uh, the World Music Institute at a 20-year event uh, where they invited a lot of world musicians to put a concert together at Town Hall. That was in 2004. Hmm. And Adam was there and, um, and uh, lots of people like Irish musicians and some uh, uh, Zakir Hussain and... Hmm. Uh, I mean, so many great names, uh, Simon Shaheen, mm. and uh, anyways, this this huge thing where they had like little groups playing, and then at the end there was a big uh, everybody playing together. And then uh, I was there with Bailo and and Adam. Just Adam loves the flute, and uh, and then he just loved the fula flute. And it turns out that a year later or so, Adam moved to New York City because he had been living on on the West Coast, and then he had this. A concept orchestra called the Go Organic Orchestra, where it's like trying to make like a world music orchestra, you know, that's not jazz. So he kind of like stays away from a lot of saxophones, you know, he's, he, and um, anyway, so he invited me to play in his orchestra and I've been playing that orchestra ever since, you know. Mm. And we've, yeah, and we did some pretty amazing things with Adam. We've also become very close friends. Ah, yeah, yeah, and obviously you've played with a lot of uh, West African musicians. A lot. The list oh. is the list is uh, very long. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine we could be here for a long time talking about some of those. Who who were some of your favorites, though? Oh Lord, uh, I know tough question. <laughs> well, one of my best that? friends is Abdullah Jabate, the singer. Mm -hmm. He lives in New York. I met him when he came to New York. And a tremendous uh, singer and guitarist, and just an incredible, you know, ball of talent, very natural person. And we did a lot together. He was in the group Soros. And uh, baritone player, Famuro Jibate, Abusila. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. It's just, and then in Africa, the, I, was, I became very close to the Mbazi Kuyate family. Mbazi Kuyate is uh, one of the greatest core players of his generation, of the, the generation of the era of the Guinean independence. Mm. There's people that uh, tra went to, uh, in, the, in the late 50s, uh, the beginning, right before Guinean independence, 
uh, in Guinea, there was this uh, organization they, they called the Ballet Africain, mm -hmm. African Ballet, and they started touring the world. And uh, they, they spent, uh, I, think, uh, I think it's three months at the Apollo Theater in like 1958 or something. And that had a huge impact. And one of the impacts was Miles Davis, who went repeatedly to their performances. I heard and, about that. Yeah. He mentioned that, it in his autobiography. Exactly. And that's that was the inspiration for Kind of Blue. Mm -hmm. The record Kind of Blue was like when he heard, he mentions the kalimba instruments, but there was balafon players there. There was, um, and there was flute players. There was a flute player. And there was a chorus player. And all these people that were on that stage that uh, with the Ballet Africain, I mean, the, not all of them, but many of them, I ended up uh, meeting them and even playing with them, working with them. Mm. Um, one of them is Mbadi Kuyate. He, uh, he was on that, on that stage. And uh, another one was uh, Mamadi Mansare, who I'm very close to, not himself, his son, very close to his son. And uh, he's also our, his son is teaching at our school in Guinea, and uh, uh, also was there. That's Jelly Surikuyate, who's a balafon player. He played with us at Sankel Hall, and uh, so. And then I got to meet uh, some of the great singers of that country, like uh, 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 what's his name, Kuyate. Uh, um, Sikuba Kandia Kuyate is the son of Sori Kandia Kuyate, who was a, a legend in West Africa of, of song in those days. Anyway, mm. so yes, like, have you had, have you ever had have you ever had any contact with uh, some of the uh, quote unquote uh, superstars such as uh, Salif Keita, Baba Mal, Yusu Endur? Yeah, I've met all of them. Uh, yeah, Angelique yes. Kidjo. Yes, I met her too. Yeah, we, uh, we Fula Flute Ensemble played at uh, Apollo Theater one time uh, in the first part of a concert with Angelique Kijo and uh, Femi Kuti. Mm. Uh, yeah, and uh, so I met Angelique there, and Salif I met uh, I met in New York just uh, casually uh, visiting because a friend of mine knew, my friend Abdullah knew him and we went to visit him one time. And uh, Baba Mal, I met, uh, he was doing some music exploration in Philadelphia, and I was invited to meet him and to try some, some stuff yeah. with him. And Yusundur, uh, uh, he was honored by the Afropop Worldwide. He received a, an award from Afropop Worldwide, and we were invited to, Fula Flute Ensemble was invited to play at the award ceremony. So I met Yusundur there. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Cool. Yeah. In 2002, you released your uh, your CD "Fool of Flute," and uh, you've re you've released a lot of music since then. Um, how 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 was uh, "Fool of Flute" uh, received? How how did that go? Well, of all the music I put out, um, that's probably the one that had the most impact. Hmm. You know um that that record because in those days um nobody knew the the fula flute and um and then uh, i you know ever since i i learned to to play the fula flute 
Uh, I thought I'd like to put an album together, but I didn't feel I had the gravitas to do it. Mm -hmm. to really, and then when I met Bailo, when he arrived in New York in 99, we met uh, kind of uh, serendipitously and we became close and I asked him if he wanted to do this project and he was, uh, he said yes right away. So we started working on it. it was very simple, just two flutes, going to the studio, let's do this, let's do that. Okay, let's try this, okay, let's try that. Okay, play this, play that. Then we put it together and it came out on the scene. It was like a boom and people would listen to this and put it on their, uh, on their player and they, they would fall off their chairs, you know, when they heard the sound. Because if you hear, especially that first track uh, of that album, it starts like, wow, <laughs> the flutes like blows. And people never heard that sound. And actually, I understand that reaction because the first time I heard it, it was uh, my friend Yaya had played a track of it for me from a record. And uh, it just blew my mind when I heard it. So um, like many uh, years before I could even play it. So, uh, and then that record just uh, went around the world, you know, and people starting, oh yeah, that's uh, where can I find what those flutes, you know? And people contact me, oh, I kind of learned to play this, you know, and so forth and so on. And just, you know, it's not, it wasn't a huge hit where, but like people knew about it, that would mean people, people, just people in the know, they knew about it and mm. they respected it. And so it had a huge impact around the world. Ah. Cool. Yeah. You released a new album, uh, or you're releasing a new album, actually. Yes. yes. Chromatica. Chromatica. Which yes. uh, you've, uh, you've named after, the, after an instrument that you invented. Yeah. Uh, the chromatic Fula flute. Uh, uh, so a lot that we could talk about that. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll get to that. But uh, in fact, uh, just yesterday, I listened to the album for the mm -hmm. first time and i loved it man oh thank you i was man. like thank you i was like wow this is really good man thank you thank one you of, one of the one of the the real surprises on there was uh you did a thelonious monk tune in walked yeah. bud and yeah. i was like i looked at the title and I'm like mm, so what's this gonna be like and i listened to it and uh yeah I re yeah much respect my compliments uh, uh, thank you uh, glad, i'm glad you like it <laughs> yeah yeah some of the musicians that you had on there uh uh mama duba uh, yeah which i understand you played with him a lot and uh he plays with lenny stern as well doesn't yes he? he plays with lenny stern he's he was uh harry belafonte's music director for ah years. yeah yeah, yeah. he plays his uh bass player's bass player you know is he is uh, he, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Julia Hayes played accordion and uh, and harp. Yes, um, there were you know the influence of the of the Cora on the way that she approached the harp on uh, yeah. this recording was impossible not to notice. And uh, mm -hmm. and she did a beautiful job of it. And uh, thank you. Uh, there were times there was one track on there that. Uh, uh, where she played accordion and it almost sounded like she was approaching it like a harmonium, an Indian harmonium, mm -hmm, which was. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Julia has a, an associate. She, I met her at Creveny studio when I first went there mm -hmm. in 1978, she was there and um, she's got, followed her own path. She was a classically uh, trained pianist, but then she veered off into harp and then accordion and uh uh, 
you know, and fo followed her own her own inspiration. She's not really a jazz musician or anything, but she does play some some music, but infusing it with her own feeling and her own uh, sensibility, which mm -hmm. is very humanistic, you know, and also very feminine. She's into the goddess and uh, things like that. So, but she's a wonderful artist. Yeah. Uh, did you record your album at Bill Laswell's studio? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Actually, um, uh, this album is really uh, Adam Rudolph. He, you know, he basically encouraged me to record this album and, you know, helped me uh, set it up and set up the studio. So, yeah, because he, he's he works with uh, Bill Laswell a lot. So, ah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I understand Bill Laswell's not feeling so good these days. Health problems. I don't know. I haven't heard anything. No. Mm. Well, I, I wish the best for him. We all do. He's a yeah. very significant guy. I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Um, in your liner notes of the album, you gave special thanks to Mas Yamagata yes. for help and advice. Uh, who is that? Mas is an associate of Adam. Um, ah. He helps Adam with uh, his album and his promotion, and uh, Mas is very knowledgeable in the music business. So, yeah, so he, he, he advised me and helped me uh, bring this project to fruition, which is a little bit of doing, making a vinyl these days is, uh, is a bit of a, a, a project like to, yeah. that took like about a year and a half from the time I ordered it to the time it was delivered, <laughs> mm. you know, because the vinyl, the whole vinyl industry is in turmoil. Yeah. Yeah. And lots of, I mean, the demand is, is increasing. And then the, uh, what you call it, the skills and the equipment to produce that is of course dwindled, you know, since the vinyl was reduced to about nothing. Yeah. Even. Since... Yeah, and it's, I mean, not only is the, the technical aspect of it, I mean, mastering it, uh, yeah. there's certain frequencies that uh, you have to eliminate. It's an, um, it's a, it, I mean, it requires a tremendous amount of knowledge. It's a very complex thing to yeah. do. You know, you have to really know what you're doing. Yeah, and then you have to decide whether or not uh, releasing vinyl is going to be uh, cost effective for you as well. Um, yeah. With that in mind, I I heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you uh, are not releasing this the, this album on CD. Yeah, I'm not. Um, I mean, the CD. Uh, nobody has CD players anymore. They don't mm. come with computers anymore. The CD player's been pretty much extinct for ten years, and uh, and CD sales are going in, into the toilet. And uh, nobody's buying CDs anymore, unless unless you're gigging and people might buy them at your gigs. Um, it's, it's really you know, you know nobody's buying CDs anymore. Mm. And also uh, the problem with the promotion now is uh, uh, a lot of the reviewers are more old school, especially for this type of music. They're more old school and they like to get CDs, you know. But then mm. shipping them now is is ridiculously expensive, you know. It used to be a buck to ship a CD, but now it's like three bucks, you know. Yeah. So you know, if you gotta ship two, three hundred of them, 
but then again uh, the problem when you're sending an email with a download link like it's it, it's it gets dismissed you know like, yeah delete 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 of course <laughs> so yeah it does not have the same value as receiving a cd so but then again I mean, you know I, there was there's always times when people you know that uh you know reviewers and whatnot would uh would get uh, a ton of CDs and they don't have right. time to listen to that. So right. I just imagine it's hard to, I know it's hard to stand out, you know, among it's, this uh, torrential flood of people saying, listen to my music. Yeah, it's also, it's so, it's so much easier now to send it. Like, of course, you make an mm -hmm. email, put a link on it, you send it and everybody has these lists and all these people are being, these uh, journalists and DJs are being inundated and uh it's getting harder and harder to stand out you know so i mean you do what you can i mean with what you going back to the full life loot record that i did 20 years ago uh, that was very successful radio stations and people you know and i found out to my uh happy surprise that people would listen to it you know people would receive it and they would pop it on the player and then right off the bat they would be like wow you know and they, so I got a lot of airplay, you know, it really was very well received, but it's become harder and harder uh, to, to be noticed. And, mm. uh, you know, also there was a, the surprise factor from the Fula flute, you know, because that sound was just, nobody had ever heard that before. So that would blow people's minds. You know? But then when you send something that's more, you know, that sounds more like something else so that's you know maybe more more su subtly creative then it's harder to get that same wow factor yeah yeah i yeah. know but uh anyway let's take a break and listen to some of your music um mm -hmm. uh, what uh what would you like us to play for your for the for our audience? What well, would I you think like the to... the catchiest track is probably the second one from the side B called Mangosh. Mangosh. Uh, yeah, Mangosh. Which from means left, uh, left hand. Yeah. Left hand. Okay, yeah. and uh, that's from your album uh, Chromatica. Right. Okay. Uh, let's give it a listen. Okay.
And we're back. You uh, spent a lot of time in Guinea. Uh, and uh, I've known a few people from Guinea. I had a really good friend from uh, Guinea. How did they accept you over there? And uh, uh, what were, you know, what, you know, when, you know, you're an Amer you're a Canadian uh, mm -hmm. slash American who's mm -hmm. coming over to, uh, to West Africa to, to uh, learn the Fula flute. How did, what was that adventure like? Well, it's, uh, it's deep and profound and on many, many different levels. I was, uh, first time I went there, I was very green. I was uh, very idealistic, uh, you know, grew up at the times of the hippies and I was kind of a hippie myself and uh, had this hippie philosophy of uh, humanistic, everybody's the same and so forth and so on. And, um, and of course, grew up like uh, pretty much in a, Kind of a suburban lifestyle kind of thing you know uh you know where you have everything you need you open the fridge and you got food there and you know uh, but then when you go there which guinea is one of the poorest countries on the world in the world and uh, you're confronted with this the poverty and uh, the psychology now of like because when you're showing up first of all a lot of these people they never you know, they, they might have seen a white person, but they don't know any, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, then you like the first time they, they meet a white person. And then there's a whole history, of course, of the, you know, uh, white colonization of Africa, that like kind of like the, uh, uh, the subscript from for all this stuff. And then you come from a very uh, comfortable, I mean, basically, I, I always make the analogy of like, okay, you're, you're, let's say you're sitting in a bar or whatever, and then Bill Gates walks in, you know, or Steven Spielberg or Elon Musk, you know, yeah, and sits down with you. And are you going to just like take him uh, like a regular guy, you know, just another person, but you're going to be like, oh, shit, here's my chance, here's my opportunity, you know. Mm -hmm. So basically, when you arrive there, a lot of people see you as an opportunity, you know. Mm. So that kind of like skews their relationships, you know. And it takes a while to get used to. Um, and also you have the, you realize the discrepancy, how, you know, how really rich we are and mm. how poor they are. And, uh, and that's, that messes up with your, with your head, you know. So there's all these these things going on. I mean, on a human level, of course, you transcend these things. You make friendships. You become friends, and and uh, but uh, I, I, in terms of a musician, I mean, people have had me play on their records, so they must have liked the way I sound, you know. And, mm -hmm. and people, when I play, invariably, uh, they're really really happy and they really love it, and uh, they're very welcoming and and uh and accepting of, of me as a, as a musician you know yeah yeah has the covid uh pandemic how do, how has that affected the um, people the economy well it messed them up because uh, when uh the covid hit they shut down a lot of activities and uh and then of course uh, you know people are just going out most people in guinea they 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 leave their house in the morning, just trying to get enough money to put food on the table in the, in the, in the evening, you know, mm -hmm. 
so uh, most people just live from day to day like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, of course, you know, clamping down on all the economic activity and uh, that was a very a big hardship on everybody. Yeah. But in terms of people getting sick, it really didn't get as affected as 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 uh, North America or Europe or maybe or China <laughs> or China. I mean, most of Black Africa, it seems, didn't get so affected. Mm. It might have to do with the fact that they really live our, outdoors. You know, mm-hmm. they don't. You know, they don't spend most of their day. They don't spend indoors. Mm-hmm. Mostly, they just sleep indoors, and then they live outdoors. They cook outdoors. They eat outdoors. They, you know, so that's that might have something to do with it. Hmm. But I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned or you alluded to that uh, that there was this interesting dynamic of uh, white musicians making a, making inroads into African music. And, uh, you know, the, obviously you're not the only one who's uh, done it. Like Ry Cooter mm-hmm. uh, had done a lot of work um, uh, with, uh, uh, like, for instance, presenting Ali Farcatore to yeah. the world. And yeah. uh, and there were, you know, there's other examples that... Yeah, uh, Bella Fleck and... Uh... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, lots uh, of people. Yeah, yeah, and I would imagine that uh, that uh, this presents some interesting dynamics as far as uh, racial relations. Like, uh, well, well, the whole idea of race, um, you know, in 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 Africa doesn't. It, it's not like 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 in North America or yeah. or even Europe. It doesn't have that. Um, it's not the same thing, you know. Of course, uh, over over in Guinea, everybody will call you, you know, the susu call you fote, fote, fote. It means white, 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 you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then uh, every every language has a word for white that they apply to you. You know, mm-hmm. Malinke is tubabu, and in Fulani is porto, and so you hear that all over. Would you say that, that those are? Dis- I'm sorry to interrupt, but would you say that those are more uh, descriptive as opposed to pejorative? More descriptive, yes, absolutely. It's not pejorative, and also it really applies not just to white people; it applies to foreigners. Mm. So uh, you know, to the dismay of some uh, some black people that come from America that go over there, then they're being called Fote, <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, yeah, what? <laughs> yeah, wow. That, yeah. That's like, yeah, that's a bit of, a bit shocking. And um, it just means stranger, you know, or, mm. or foreigner, mm. you know? Uh, so it doesn't have that racial, it's not racial, mm. you know? And, and they don't, uh, there's not that sense uh, for, from what I see, of course, I'm white, so, you know, I don't want to talk for black people, but uh, from what I see, there's not this sense of, oh, we're black, you know, there's not, you know, they don't yeah. think of themselves that way, you know. Yeah, well, I imagine they never had to, unlike... Exactly, uh, they're among, you know, they're, they're, they're home, you know. Yeah, yeah, this, it's, yeah, yeah that's, that's one of the things that a lot of that people, you know, when they're are exposed to uh, different nationalities, different cultures, and they go over to those to other places where they are they're the foreigner they have a hard time realizing that they're the foreigner they're the aliens you know they're the exotic ones you right. know and somebody and they're in somebody else's territory right 
United States, though, I mean, you've got uh, you know Africans that are coming coming over to uh, to live and to conduct business, and at the same time, you've had African Americans who uh, whose families have been here for a very long mm-hmm. time and uh, mm-hmm. often under very uh, difficult. Oh yeah, we can say Situ- the least. Yeah, situations. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh uh do you think that that might present some kind of a barrier between have you noticed that a barrier between African Americans and Africans where they have a hard time relating to each other? Well, I hesitate to uh, to wade in those waters, <laughs> you know, uh as an observer, I see that yeah. there's some tensions, you know. Um because uh, it seems uh, African-Americans, you know, have experienced uh, the hardships of racism, you know, and uh, Africans have not, you know, and they come, they, and I mean, not in that same way, let's say. Right. And uh, they, they come to America and then, you know, it takes them a while to really understand what the uh, Black Americans are talking about, let's say, you know, I'm observing, you know, I'm not yeah, on the inside, I, yeah. so I don't want to offend anybody. Um, so, so there, there, you know, there is, there are tensions there for sure. I've heard about them. I have not experienced them myself, you know. Yeah. In fact, I was going to ask you about that uh, uh, because uh, I mean, obviously uh, you, know, you playing, you know, we're in places where uh, there are African musicians and, African audiences, and uh, I would imagine also uh, African American musicians and audiences. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you notice how uh, uh, whether or not uh, African American audiences are supportive of traditional African music or some of the more contemporary African music? By and large, I would say not at all. You know, I mean, mm. there, there's a there's a segment of the population, but it's true for you know most world music. You know. Um, you know the 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 segment of the population that's interested in world music you know in north america i would say is like a fraction of one percent you know and that's true among uh african americans as well as uh, and also the problem is um african uh, american music is so powerful and so strong mm-hmm. you know and it's all over the world you know People want to sound like that. They want to play like that. They want to dress like Americans. They want to eat like Americans. It was so you know, it's uh, not much of a incentive you know for uh, Americans to really get interested in other things. There are some people that are open-minded and cultivated and that are looking for that, but this is a small segment of the population. And I think that's as true of uh, African Americans as as. Uh, white Americans or or any anything American you know so that's just the nature of uh, humans (laughs) I I would say you know yeah 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 we are we are a very strange species (laughs) I've been well you know I mean also I suppose uh, if you're like me you know I was very idealistically got interested in world music a long time ago and I was just a fledgling fledgling thing in the culture at the time you know it was a very beginning embryonic thing so you know for the rest of the culture to catch up you know and I mean that's just when you're a pioneer I guess you know I guess I'm a pioneer mm-hmm. um, then of course uh, you might find yourself uh, preaching in the desert a lot of times. You know? yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, 
Yeah, I guess that's just how how these things work. Yeah. Let's get back to the chromatica. Yeah. Uh you're you an instrument that you that you invented. The you you took the fool of flute and redesigned it uh so to speak, uh so that it can it has it, it can function as a chromatic instrument, yeah. which is yeah. something that doesn't happen in traditional uh yeah. African music. It's uh it's almost exclusively diatonic. Yeah. Although there were there were a few times uh I'd heard some music the, from uh, different parts of Africa where there was some chromaticism happening. There was a piece that came from Uganda. I forget okay. uh, who did it, but it was, you know, very, you know, mm. very diatonic. And then suddenly the, uh, the, the organ played something that, that sounded like, like, like Sun Ra had suddenly walked into the session. Okay. But anyway, how did, uh, how did you, how did you come up with that idea? Um, it was, uh, uh, I, I had been learning to make flutes because when I did the Fula Flute CD, uh, people started looking for flutes and, uh, the supply from Africa is very unreliable and also not necessarily in tune with the Western standards. So, I mean, if you're going to buy a flute, you probably want to play it with your friends or playing guitar or piano or whatever. And so. It'd be nice to have a flute that's in tune with that's tuned to, to those instruments. So I I started making them. I got my hand on a supply of material and I started making them and I got kind of lucky right off the bat and made some decent flutes and started sending them all around the world mm. for many years. And then uh, one summer there was always this problem with playing with balafones because balafones are in C most most balafones from West Africa are played in C. And they're not, and those, those, I'm sorry to interrupt, but those instruments are not equally tempered, I imagine. Well, now they are, but they used to really? be, uh, they used to be equidistant, uh, uh, like almost like whole tone scales. Really? <laughs> well, it was like a seven note scale, but equidistant, the traditional tuning. Mm. But, um, uh, but, uh, the, but now they tune them to, to the to the piano, mm. but so the problem the fula flute is that uh, there's a flute and you, you can't make a flute in C in a traditional. You can make an an F or in G, or an A flat or an F sharp, you know, because just uh, the, I mean, it's the structure of the instrument is like that. Yeah, yeah. So there's always so I would use I would use a flute in F usually, and then you'd have that B flat would clash. And the fula flute is an instrument that sounds good with half holes, you know, because it's an instrument where you you use your fingers a little bit like a percussion and you pop the holes when you, you hit them. That, that's part of the sound, pop, 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 you know, mm. the, the note and the pop, you know, that's, that's part of the, the sound of the instrument. So that B flat was always problematic. You have to do some gymnastics around it, you know because we clash with the balafon. So then one day I saw it at an A-flat flute and I saw where I could, I would have to make a demonstration to really show how that happened. But if I move two of the holes up, you know, like basically the D-flat the and the E-flat hole, I could move them up on the flute then I could have, you know, C-D-E-F. And, and then I would have a, a, a C flute. So when I did that, and I realized I just needed to put one more hole and add the full chromatic scale. Mm. So, 
it was a very simple, very simple thing. But then, uh, um, but then it was not just that. It was also how you play this thing, you know, because it's, it's not like a regular flute that people are familiar with. It's a little bit you know, another different animal. And so there was a whole develop. How do you hold it? How do you play it? How do you produce all this stuff? And uh, and then I submitted a submitted for a patent, and it went through because mm. it didn't cool. exist anywhere. <laughs> so. I was, you know, it was kind of an exciting thing to do, and wow, you know, I invented a flute, you know, and then uh, <laughs> I got okay. Now I better learn how to play it. Somebody else is going to come around and play it better than me. I can't yeah. have that. So. Have other people have been playing the? Yeah, the yeah, a few people have bought it, and uh, some people really like it, and they really enjoy playing it. Actually, uh, the system uh, the, is similar to the caval. It's a flute, an, an Eastern European flute. But it's mm-hmm. hand blown, whereas the uh, full flute is side blown. So, mm. so that's otherwise uh, I wouldn't have been able to patent it. But it has a different embouchure. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So people that can play the caval, <clears throat> they can pick up this uh, chromatic flute and play the chromatica and play it pretty readily. Yeah, that's that's cool. Cool. You had uh, mentioned. New York City's uh, Global Fest has been uh, presenting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, African bands to the U.S. audiences, but uh, mm-hmm. there was a recent uh, visa fee fee raise that was proposed in uh, Congress, mm-hmm. the, and the cost of uh, for the P and O visas would go from uh, four hundred and sixty dollars to uh, sixteen hundred dollars, which yes. is a two hundred and fifty percent increase. And this is, you know, this is obviously going to have some repercussions if, uh, if some, you know, some, some tyrant in uh, Congress decides to push this through. Uh, would you care to comment on that? Well, you know, I mean, uh, uh, well, having been to Africa and spent a lot of time in Guinea, you know, most people there, the majority of people there, especially young people. They just want to come here you know? mm-hmm. and they just want to go to Europe or whatever because they see all these movies, everybody's got cars and cell phones and like good life and, they, you know, and over there, it, it's just hard, you know, just to go make enough money to feed your family and everything. You just basically, you know, no matter how hard you work uh, for the majority of people, you're just kind of stuck on a subsistence level, you know. So, mm-hmm. They all want to get the good life and uh, they don't want to come here. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of the artists and, and very few people are able to get visas to get here. Uh, basically, um, let's say government officials and business people, uh, rich people and uh, officials and then artists, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, there was a lot of abuse and in the visa thing. So it's understandable that uh, the government wants to crack down and it's become, it's become very, very difficult for artists uh, or anybody for that matter to get a visa to come here or to Europe or whatever. So that's, uh, that's very unfortunate, uh, but it's kind of natural. You know, to me, I look at it like uh, Poverty and wealth are like two poles. You get a negative pole and a positive pole, and uh, 
the positive is going to flow to the negative, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, well, in this case, we would be the negative and uh, they would be the positive. So they got a lot of people to give and get a lot of resources and they just want a better life. And the same thing that brought all these immigrants to America, you know, it's uh, the same attraction for them. You know, they want to, they, they, the opportunities are home are non-existent. They want to make a better life, you know, and uh, so they, they're attracted to a place where there's wealth and uh, now we're in a period of time where uh, okay well now we feel uh, we have enough people here so we're going to close the door now mm-hmm. and uh, well this uh, it's tinged with racism uh, of course because uh, all these other immigrants before were italian or they were all white and eastern european or you know uh, but now they're turning out to be a different complexion so now we don't want them and uh, but there was, you know, of course, when the Irish came and when the Italians came, they were looked down you know, as uh, inferior and so forth. Yeah. So it's not, nothing new, but it's getting more extreme. You know, right now we're in a period of time where uh, I don't know, it's unfortunate that people come to uh, North America and uh, they find success and everything and they want to close the door behind them, you know, and uh, mm. that's a, it's, it's sad. Yeah, I'm French Canadian, so my family goes back 15 generations in North America, you know, mm-hmm. so not quite the same uh, perspective. Yeah, I suppose that's just another uh, aspect of human nature. I, uh, I was talking yeah. to a friend of mine in uh, Senegal, and he said, and I quote, uh, you know, some of my people forget about what's going on back home. And, and in Africa also, they don't know, they think uh, you're going to come... To America and everything's going to become easy, you know. It's all oh, no. a piece of cake now. You're just there. You get all the money. You just bend over and pick it up, you know. Yeah. And uh, they, then they come here and it's like, oh, well, because over there, okay, maybe the government doesn't really have a, a safety net, but they have huge families that, you know, you you can always go back to your family even though they're not so rich and everything, but there'll always be a place for you to sleep and a meal mm-hmm. to be had, you know. But, right. uh, but here it's just like you're you're yourself on the sidewalk and yeah else, yeah you know? you're on your own yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah you've been very active in MFM for a long time and have mm-hmm. been a featured guest on many of our webinars and workshops yeah here's a two part question uh, how did you originally get involved with MFM and uh, what are your your own future plans in the area of uh, music activism. Um, well, the reason I'm part of MFM really has a lot to do with the irresistible personality of Sorab Sadat Lajabardi. <laughs> yeah. He played with you a few times too, didn't we? <laughs> yes, he, uh, I met him at some of my gigs and he, he asked to sit in and I said, yeah, sure, come on in. And uh, he, he was happy about that. And, uh, and then he liked, uh, especially the Fula Flute that I was doing, he had me on one of his albums and... Uh, I really enjoyed playing on it, and uh, he's just, uh, you know, I really respect him. He's a wonderful, great sax player and mm-hmm. uh, very excellent musician. And um, he speaks highly of you too. Thank you, thank you. And uh, and uh, I'm not. I, I I tend to, you know, I tend to be a little bit more um, uh, have, you know, not be so political, you know, I mean, I have strong political opinions, you know, um, I guess I'm a lefty, you know, uh, but I, in terms of mixing music and politics, I'm a little bit 
uh, bit wary of that. Um, and also the reality of uh, musicians, it, it is what it is. It's not because it's our, our activities are not really very well integrated into the economy. You know? But uh, I think Sorab is onto something in, in wanting to put people together and uh, developing a network and, uh, and, uh, and pushing for uh, increased respect for artists and creators. And I'm totally down with that and I'm totally supportive of that. And, uh, you know, I grew up in Quebec. We were really, I was like really a lefty and pro-union and pro-people. Uh, and uh, so I'm carrying that mentality, you know, and also it's, it infuses my whole approach with uh, African music and uh, getting involved in Africa. And uh, so, yeah, so I'm done with it. <laughs> mm, cool, cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on uh, MFM Speaks Out. And uh, thank you for the contributions you've made to MFM. And uh, thank you for all the great music. Well, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure, and I really appreciate it. Our guest for this episode of MFM Speaks Out has been Sylvain LaRue. The topics discussed included Sylvain's study of classical flute at Vincent de Indy and improvisation and composition in New York at the Creative Music Studio, his time with Adam Rudolph's orchestra, the jazz and world music scene in Canada, how he became interested in the Fula Flute, his band Source, and their time at New York City's Zinc Bar for over a decade, how the combination of Guinean music and jazz has been accepted among jazz audiences, his 2002 release Fula Flute and how it was received, his new album Chromatica, and his work with Julia Haynes and Mamadou Ba on that album, his performances at Zankel Hall with the Fula Flute Ensemble, his performances with Adam Rudolph, Carl Berger, Hassan Hockman, and some of the West African musicians he's played with, how and why he founded music literacy program Le École Fula Flute, how COVID affected the people's spirits and economy in Guinea, government support of the arts, his business of making and selling Fula flutes, how he invented and patented the chromatica, his activities in MFM, the present African world music scene in New York City, the separation between Afro-American musicians and African musicians, New York's Global Fest for presenting African bands to the U.S. audiences, the recent visa fee raise that was proposed to Congress, and his future plans in the areas of music activism. If you'd like to hear more interviews like this one, hit the subscribe button. We thank you for your support. We've been doing very well in recent years, found new audiences, and brought incredible stories and content, and we plan to do more of this in the future. We've always been consistent, and we believe that an important step toward the success of the music community is in building a different media. If you would like to help us on that journey, go to musiciansformusicians.org. You can become a supporter and help our work reach even more people. My name is Dawood Kringle, and you have been listening to MFM Speaks Out. Thank you for joining us. And we'd like to leave you with some music. This is a track from the album Chromatica called In Walked Bud. <laughs>